Today is Missions Sunday, which we do actually every year in November. I'm not sure if it's the same, if it's always the first Sunday in November, but it's always in November. And uh, Renska and I are missionaries being sent out from this church by you guys. And so we, I have the privilege of being the missionary representative and speaking to you about missions this morning, which I'm pretty excited to do because I'm about to go do it. Um, and so I wanted to give you a little context around uh, why we do a missions Sunday every day, every, every year. And we are part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. It's actually in our name, the Missionary Alliance. Uh, and they ask us, they, th- one of the things that they, have, they say to their churches is, hey, you should at least once a, a year, you should have a Sunday dedicated to talking about missions because it's really important. Uh, and our, our family of churches, our denominations, didn't start as a denomination. It started as little groups of people coming together to pray for and send out and support missionaries. It was a mission-sending agency, but that's probably too generous because it wasn't as organized as that in the beginning. And over time, it became a denomination because churches started growing up around these, peop- these groups of people who were meeting together, and they became a denomination more out of necessity than anything else. But we've been doing this, our, our, our denomination, the Alliance, has been doing this for a long time. We sent our first missionaries uh, overseas back in 1884 to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And now our biggest churches are actually not in the U.S., they're actually in the Philippines and in South Korea. So the Alliance is a big global international organization, and God has done incredible things through it and through us and through you as part of it. But at the heart of, 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 of the, the, the alliance is this idea that bringing the, gospels to the, bringing the gospel to those who have never heard is at the heart of who God is, and it's also at the heart of what he's called us to as the church and as a local church here in Mendham and Chester, New Jersey. Because we really believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that Jesus is the only way to God. And so bringing the gospel to people who have never heard that message, we call that gospel access. People who don't have access to the gospel, they can't walk down the street and walk into a Christian bookstore. They don't know anyone who would call themselves a Christian. They, they don't have Christian radio stations. They don't have the Bible in their language. They don't have any literature in their language. They don't have access to the internet. Some people have zero access. Some people have limited access to the gospel. But that is bringing the gospel to people who have never heard because how can you believe in someone who has not heard, you have not heard of? You can't believe in Jesus if you haven't heard of him. And so as as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, he says, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless someone is sent to tell them? And so that is at the heart, the core of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And we as a church have been involved in sending for a long time as well, since the very beginning of when this church was started, was planted. Uh, We have sent out, currently we have a number of missionaries that we support, but two that you might know are Brian and Michelle Davis. Brian spoke last year at our Missions Emphasis Sunday. Brian and Michelle actually started in this church. They were youth leaders here, and they felt God's calling to go to Senegal in West Africa to reach Wolof people. And they were there for 10 years, and we supported them. And then they came back to the States, and they're in New York City now, and they're actually still reaching Wolof people in New York City. I think there's a population of around 200,000 because people are on the move. And we support them. And More recently, Dan and Miriam Hutton got sent out, I think two years ago, uh, to Arab lands. Dan was, grew up in this church. His parents still attend church here, Martin and Susie. I don't know if they're here this morning. They attend this, he grew up in this church and he was a youth worker, something about being a youth worker. They got sent out to Arab lands as well. And so we support them. We've been involved and you're about to send well, Renska's already gone, but you're, you're about to send us out to England, to Wolverhampton, to plant a church. And so this, this is what good, healthy churches do. They're involved in missions. And just as an aside, if you ever leave this area and stop going to Mendham, God forbid, 
But if you're ever in an area where you're looking for a new church, make sure it's involved in, miss, in missions, in sending people out, in church planting, in, in training and, and, and seeing people go on into ministry because a healthy church reproduces just like a healthy human being reproduces. It multiplies itself. Good, healthy churches are involved in missions. And so I get the opportunity this morning to tell you about, to share about what we're going to be doing in Wolverhampton. We're enormously excited uh, and I've already been seeing God move as he's been preparing our path ahead. But before I get into that, I just want to share a quick message from Renska and the kids that they sent over to me. So check this out. Hello, friends. We made it to the other side of the pond in one piece. And today, we, Saturday, we actually moved into our new temporary home that will be home for a little while until we're able to move on. Um, just wanted to thank you all for all your sweet notes and texts and emails. Um, keep them coming. It is such a blessing to know that we have a family that's praying for us. And um, we really miss you all very much. Tice, did, what did you want to say? I love you very much and I miss you so much. All right. Well, I think that counts for all of us. Can we say goodbye? Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Come on, the video. So they're over there. They're arrived. Just wanted to give you a little update. They moved into our temporary rental place uh, on Saturday, as Renska said, and, and we'll, we're actually going to join them. We'll live there until the baby's born in January and maybe a little bit after, and we'll be trying to figure out where we're going to be moving to in Wolverhampton uh, while we're there. Uh, but they're adjusting, and Renska said to me during the week, I, I knew I was going to miss New Jersey. I knew we were going to miss our friends and, and our family, uh, and now I'm actually missing them, and she was a little homesick. So uh, you're, you're, some of you have been texting with her and reaching out to her, and she has very much appreciated that. Um, so we're going to Wolverhampton. Where is that? Does anyone actually know where Wolverhampton is? Brits? <laughs> um, so Wolverhampton is, uh, if you go to the first slide, uh, that's an aerial shot. A lot of European cities don't tend to have big skylines like uh, American cities do. They tend to be a little flatter. I remember the first time we flew over Toulouse in France as a teenager, and I was going, where's, where's the city, actually? I don't see the city. And a lot of, they just don't do big, tall buildings in the same way that we do. Um, but Wolverhampton is two and a half hours northwest of London, so London is, if you go to the next slide, London is in the southeast corner of England, and Wolverhampton is actually towards the middle of England itself. So British Isles, that's all of them, and then Scotland is up in the north in the brown, England is the lighter blue, that little dark blue country on the west of England is Wales, and then the island off the west coast is uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland just to give you a little geography, familiarize yourself with England. So Wolverhampton is towards the middle. If you zoom in on the next slide to Wolverhampton, you'll actually see that it sits on the doorstep of Birmingham, which is England's second largest city. Birmingham is the youngest city in Europe. Uh, it has, Birmingham proper has 1.2 million people, but Birmingham metropolitan area, which is if you see the ring road that goes around, which is kind of in the reverse C, that's the Birmingham, it includes Wolverhampton, and it actually includes further out than that to the southeast as well. Uh, that whole area is about 4.3 million people. It's more diverse than London. Birmingham has, 20% of Birmingham's population is Arab. 30% uh, of Wolverhampton's population is from an ethnic minority background. So it's a very diverse area. Um, Wolverhampton has a population of 260,000 people. And as I said, 30% of that population are from ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, a couple of statistics for you, uh, just about England in general, but that pertain to why we're going to such a, a, a populous city. Uh, a recent poll from two, well, recent, two years ago, asked people what they're going through and asking religious questions of people, and less than 6% of people in England would say that they are active Christians who follow Jesus. And those were just the people that, that actually had the, the actions that were living it out. And the bar was set pretty low. They, they had to, these are the 6% of people, to be active, they had to uh, read the Bible and pray at least once a week and attend church once a month. Less than 6%. 
It's slightly higher in Wolverhampton, but not by much. And so the, the city is ripe for the gospel, not least because of that statistic, but because the nations have been flooding into the country for the last 20 or 30 or even 40 years. And so the nations are there. Churches are being planted in Birmingham amongst Ethiopians and Romanians and Arabs. Wolverhampton has a, a university of 23,000 students, a fairly well-respected university. In England, the number of people who say they have no religion, call them the religious nuns, is over 50%. And it actually rises to 57, it peaks among 18 to 24 year olds at 57%, so college students would say that I have no religion because it, they grew up without it or, or their parents went to the, 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 the state church, the Church of England, but didn't transmit it, didn't pass it along. We've got an entire generation coming along that doesn't know Christ. So why Wolverhampton specifically? We're gonna be partnering on the ground with a local church planting network who has planted 20 churches in the last 10 years and just set a goal to plant another 30 churches in the next 10 years, the coming 10 years. And I was talking to Neil who started this church planting network and they're gonna, you know, they're gonna come alongside us and train us and support us. And uh, I said to, uh, he, he said to me rather, uh, you know, we're really excited you're coming when I told him that, you know, we are coming, we're, we feel like this is where God's leading us. And he said, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but we've been praying for a couple for Wolverhampton for a while. Because in Birmingham, Wolverhampton is kind of the next clear strategic place that, to plant a church, where a church needs to be planted, where there's not a healthy, life-giving, gospel-preaching church that, will plant, that, will, that wants to see other churches planted around it that's going to multiply itself. So he said, we've been praying for that. The head of the InterVarsity, which is kind of or the equivalent of the InterVarsity student ministry at the University of Wolverhampton, said, you know, when a student comes up to me and says, where should I go to church? He doesn't have a good answer for him. There are some unhealthy churches. There are some Anglican Church of England churches, which is slowly bleeding people. It's dying, it's losing people. It, doesn't, it hasn't reached the next generation. And so Wolverhampton is desperate for a church. Um, Renske and I have felt for a long time that God was going to call us back to Europe at some point. We didn't know when and we didn't know where. Renske's from Holland. She grew up in France. She's actually European. I pretend to be European. <laughs> but we felt like, God, our hearts were going to be drawn back there and which we didn't know where, and the opportunity opened to plant in Wolverhampton, and we started to walk along the path of going, is this where you want us to go, Lord? And we started to pray very specifically, please shut the door, and don't, if it's really, like, shut the door, or make it, show us a way forward. And each time, there were two or three instances where each time he, he would show us a way forward, and it usually wasn't the way forward we were hoping for, but it was a very clear way forward. Which is why Renska's over there now and we're separated for a few months. Because he showed us a really clear way forward and we had prayed for a very clear way forward. So that also is why, because we have been, we have been feeling a call back to Europe for a long time and God has been moving in our lives very, very clearly. And so our goal is to plant a church in Wolverhampton that's capable of reaching those students, that's capable of reaching those ethnic minorities, and it is 68% white, and, but we're gonna reach, those people on some level will reach them because I'm white. And the, the struggle for a white man trying to reach ethnic minorities with the gospel is that I'm white. And so one of the things you can pray for is who's, who's going to be in leadership with us? It's gonna be better than I am at reaching those people with the gospel because Wolverhampton has a huge Indian Sikh population, the highest in, in, in the United Kingdom, one of the highest. That can reach the students, that can reach the ethnic minorities, a church for Wolverhampton that will see other churches planted and see other churches planted in that area, will see church planters trained and sent out. And that's a really 
big dream, a really big goal. And Renska and I are very much aware that we are not uh, able to do that on our own. In fact, we've never done that. I mean, I grew up in the church. I've been around church all my life. I know how churches work. But I've never planted a church before. I've never started one. And so this is a big goal. And we're walking along this in faith because we really feel like God has called us in this direction very clearly. But we know that without his power, without his leading, without the power of the Holy Spirit in us, working in that city, we're gonna fail. And part of that is partnering with you. We need your support, we need your prayer. And I'm not blowing smoke at you because something happens when the people of God begin to pray. Our hearts get lined up with his and stuff happens if we really lean into praying. And so we're gonna be sharing prayer requests with you. We've got a newsletter. If you, we sent one out already. If you didn't get it and you would like to get it, you could sign up for it under the big TV in the foyer. There's a table there. I won't be offended if you don't sign up. But would you pray for us? Would you commit to praying regularly for us? Because I truly believe that unless we are backed up by prayer, we're not going to succeed. The second part of partnership is giving. And this is sort of about me, but it's, it's not just about me. The way that the alliance is set up is that all of our churches give into a central fund. It's called the Great Commission Fund. And so when you give to missions at Mendham, that allows Mendham to give into that fund, which sends missionaries around the world and finances them. And so when you give to the missions fund at Mendham Hills, you are supporting people like Brian and Michelle Davis, who are are in New York City, just across the river. You're supporting people like Dan and Miriam Hutton, who have been sent out to Arab lands. And you'll also be supporting people like Renska and I, who are being sent out to England to plant a church. Renska and I are a little bit different because we're with a branch of the CMA that is uh, called Marketplace Ministries and because we're with that part of the CMA, we're actually tasked with raising all of our own support. And so Mendham is going to support us, but we actually need other churches and other individuals to support us as well. And so part of my ask, and this is the personal ask this morning, is if you would prayerfully consider supporting us individually over and above what you give to Mendham, that would be an answer of prayer for us because we do have to raise all of our support. But I want you to prayerfully consider it because there's a real possibility that God has someone else that he wants you to support because you can't support every person who comes along and asks for money. And so would you prayerfully consider, if you feel that in that direction, Lord, do you want us to support them or do you want us to support Dan and Miriam or Brian and Michelle? The third way, the last way, the way that I'm really excited about is come and visit us. Some of you travel for work, please stop by. But we're going to, our goal is to have the church far enough along in 2021 that there's something for you to come see. We're gonna organize a a short-term trip and hopefully it will be the first of many. But would you consider coming to visit? Because there's something about when you start praying for something, when you start giving to something, when you start visiting and meeting people there. We know this from Guatemala. When you get on the ground and you meet people and you serve them, your heart gets tied to that place. And in some ways, it's life-changing. In many ways, it's life-changing. As you see what faith looks like in different contexts, as you see how they live and how they live out their faith, would you consider coming? I'm going to switch gears because I wanted to talk to you about what we're going to be doing, but I also want to be talking about why we're doing it, and I've done that a little bit already, but talking in a bigger why mission, and what does it look like to have a missional mindset, because that affects all of us. That affects us as we are called and sent out overseas, but it affects you as you stay here in in Chester and Mendham, New Jersey. So if you will read along with me in Acts chapter 17, um, we're going to look as Paul arrives in Athens. And Paul has, he arrives in Athens not by design. He was a planner, but he arrives in Athens not by design. See, he was in the city of Thessalonica and he was preaching the gospel to the Jews there, but they didn't respond very well. In fact, they were trying to kill him. 
And so the Christians in Thessalonica said, Paul, we have to get you out because we can't lose you. And so they sent him off to the city of Berea. And in Berea, he kept doing the same thing. He went into the synagogue and he started preaching the gospel to the Jews. And it says that the Jews were more high-minded in Berea, more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica because they were listening to what Paul was saying and they started checking what he was saying against the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, which is the back part of your Bible. Checking to see, does it make sense? Does it jive with what God's already told us? But the Thessalonican Jews heard what Paul was doing in Berea, and so they came over to stir things up against Paul in Berea, and the Christians once again had to say, Paul, we've got to get you out of here for your safety. And so they sent him over to Athens, and Paul arrives in Athens with time to kill. He hadn't planned to come there. He hadn't planned to be there. He's got to wait for Timothy and Silas, his traveling companions. And he begins to walk around the city. And as we read this, as we go through this, I've got five observations that I want to throw out to you about what it looks like to develop a missional mindset and what a missional mindset actually means. In fact, I think having a missional mindset could be summed up in two questions. Where has God placed you and who has he placed around you? Where has God placed you, and who has he placed around you? And how should I reach them? That's a missional mindset. So as we read, follow along on the screens, if you would. Verse 16, now Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas at Athens, and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. And so before we really get into the story, the first Observation, all my observations start with M's. I like it when there's nice and neat and they have M's. All the same letter, makes me happy. The first one is the man, Paul the man, his character. And Paul is a called man. He's a call, he's been called by God. And he has two calls in his life that kind of come together in this passage. There's this general call which applies to us as well. And there's this specific call that's really specific to him. And the general call, we get that from in one place, we get it from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus is talking to the disciples before he's taken back up into heaven, and he looks at them and he gives them a command. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, most of us read that and go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going overseas. I'm not called to go overseas. I mean, I'm, I'm just staying here, so that really doesn't apply to me. But the better translation of that verse is actually, as you go, make disciples. And that changes the whole imperative of the verse. Instead of go being the command, the command is make disciples. Oh, well, that applies to me and you. And Jesus makes an assumption in, that, in, that, in the first part of that. He says, as you go. The assumption is we're all going somewhere. We all are going somewhere. Maybe we're, we're, we're put for now, but you started somewhere. You were born, and then you grew up and went to high school, and you were there for a while, and then you went to college, and maybe you did more college, or maybe you didn't, and you, you got a job, and you got married, and you had kids, and maybe you moved a couple of times, but you were going somewhere. And Jesus says, as you go, Wherever I have put you, wherever you choose to go, and however those two work together, make disciples. And so Paul is having an as-you-go moment because he didn't intend to get to Athens. It just so happened that he got chased out of where he was trying to be, and he wound up in Athens. And so as he goes, he's trying to make disciples. But there's a second calling on his life that's more specific. You see, Paul is called an apostle. Apostle means literally sent one, one who is sent. And Paul was sent out by the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. The Holy Spirit said to the elders there, hey, pick some people amongst you to send out. And so they prayed and they, they, they listened for God's leading. And the Holy Spirit said, Paul and Barnabas. And so they prayed over them and sent them out. And so they had a specific call to go. I don't think that's the norm. I think the norm is as you go. It's the Matthew 28. It's wherever God has you, who's around you, make disciples. Where has he put you and who has he placed around you? 
I have that specific call to go. Dan and Miriam have that specific call to go. Brian and Michelle had that specific call to go. Maybe someone in this room has that call to go as well. But we see both here from Paul in the situation as he arrives in Athens, he's been sent out and he's, he's being carried along by the circumstances of life as well. And so Paul in verse 16 arrives in Athens and his spirit is provoked within him as he sees the city full of idols. It's such a great phrase. Has your spirit ever been provoked within you? If you have children, the answer is yes. <laughs> His spirit, he looked around and he could see the idolatry. I was listening to a John Mayer song, one of my favorite musicians in high school, a song called Waiting on the World to Change. And he says, I, I see everything that's wrong with the world and those who lead it. I just feel like I don't have the means to rise above and beat it, so I'm waiting, waiting on the world to change. And Paul looks at Athens and he can see everything that's wrong with Athens. He sees the idolatry. He sees that the one true God is not worshiped there. John Piper, a preacher and author, once said, you know, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Paul arrives in Athens and worship of the one true God, the God of Jesus, sorry, Jesus who is God, the worship of Jesus does not exist in Athens. And so missions exist. He's on mission there. And most of us know what it feels like to have our spirit provoked within us, right? We look around at our country, we look at our politics, at our society, turn on the news, hop on Facebook for a second. There's a lot of stuff going wrong right now. Our spirits are provoked, feel angry about it. It shouldn't be that way. And closer to home, our, our, our schools and our communities are in crisis. Sometimes our households are in crisis. See exactly what's wrong with my spouse right now. We know what that feels like and often we respond in one of two ways. We respond with apathy. Nothing I can do would make a difference anyway so I'll, I'll do nothing. I'm not gonna waste my, my breath or my time and hope that it doesn't affect me too much. Or we, we respond with activism, we fight political stuff with political activism and we fight societal injustices with social activism and not necessarily bad and sometimes it's better to do nothing than to do something but Paul shows us a different response when we have that what I call holy discontent in us when we look at at the world and go something's wrong something needs to change it's not right. Paul shows us a better way because the reality is when activism or apathy becomes our ultimate answer to the problems of the world, that's idolatry. That's saying these things are the ultimate answer. But Paul shows us that there's a different way. And in verse 17, Luke, who wrote Acts, says, so, therefore, because of what he saw around him, he began to reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so what does he do? He begins to preach Jesus and the resurrection. And that's what he models for us here. That's his, his motivation. His motivation is this holy discontent that he allows to fuel the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, Jesus and the resurrection. And so in terms of thinking about a missional mindset, let me encourage you, if you feel that holy discontent, your spirit provoked within you, you see everything that's wrong with the world, don't do like John Mayer and say, I don't have, I can't change it, I'll do nothing. And don't fall into the trap of activism either because good things can be accomplished, but not always. Follow Paul as he allows that motivation of discontent to fuel, to push him, to drive him to speak of Jesus. The man, the motivation, 
And next we start to see his method. How does he go about doing it? And as he continues to talk in the marketplace and in the synagogue with the Jews who are there, some of the philosophers, you notice, come up and overhear him. This is the cultural elite, the, the academics, the intellectuals come up and they overhear him and they say, what's this loser talking about? Because you see, they, they thought he was talking about some foreign divinities. In Greek, resurrection is, is anastasis. And so they thought he was talking about some foreign divinity called Jesus and his, his female consort, anastasis. What's this loser talking about, this babbler? But they invite him to come back to their gathering place, the Areopagus, and they say, what, what were you talking about? Come and tell us what you were talking about. And it's not an entirely friendly, friendly environment that he's being invited into. They're looking to have some fun with him. So it's kind of hostile. But he walks in nonetheless. And he stands up in verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, men of Athens, and he's talking to these two Greek groups of philosophers, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans are, are a group of people who said, who their essential philosophy was, we can't control our environment. We can't control, sorry, I'm getting turned around. The Epicureans say, I can't control what's inside my emotions. It's too strong. It just needs to be set free. You do you. And so in order to, 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 to achieve peace and happiness and, and, and the good life, they sought to control their environment and they would remove themselves from normal society and sequester themselves away so that nothing could trigger them. And the Stoics looked at the Epicureans and said, well, that's a load of hogwash. Of course you can't, you can't, of course you can't control your, your, your environment. That's ridiculous but we're gonna control what's inside. And so they sought for, they, they strove to be virtuous and to control and master their emotions as the answer to how do I find happiness and peace and achieve the good life. Both of them had essentially minimized and made God irrelevant. Had no place in their worldview for God or at God's. And so Paul walks into the midst of this gathering, and he begins to speak. And he, he, he begins by finding common ground, by pointing out an obvious truth to them. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, when we, someone says, I perceive, we tend to hear it, at least in my mind, I hear it in an English accent. I perceive in every way you are very religious. And it sounds very intelligent. But Paul is not making a, a brilliant cultural analysis here. He's just pointing out the obvious. If you remember in verse 16, it says that the city is full of idols. An academic from the time called Petronius made the comment that in Athens, it's easier to find an idol than it is to find a man. Paul's not making social commentary and, or analysis. He's just pointing out the obvious. He's making common ground. And this is common ground that is valid for us too. The great American philosopher Bob Dylan once said, everybody serves somebody. It might be the devil, and it might be the Lord, or something in between, but everybody serves somebody. We all trust in something. It might be science, it might be rationalism, it might be sports, career, friends, spouse, self, social media. But when you start to look at your life and the life of those around you and you see where we turn in pain and crisis and you see where we invest our time and our talents and our treasure, you start to get a really clear picture of the things that we actually trust in. Paul finds common ground. That's good common ground to start on. What are you trusting in? Where do you turn? I heard on the news this week that people are starting to ask deep spiritual questions and worldview questions up to, their, to their, their soul cycle instructors. Why? Because we, we, we all trust something. We want to know. And when we can't ask, when society has taken away every, the logical places, traditionally, you could ask, you ask somewhere else. 
So Paul finds common ground, and then he acknowledges the obvious irony of the situation. In verse 23, he says, I've also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Paul is in the midst of this gathering of the cultural elite, the intellectuals, a group of men in a, in a city renowned for its learning. Have you ever been with a group of men who's willing to admit that they don't know something? Wives? How often does your husband admit that he doesn't know something? Guilty. Paul is in the midst of this gathering of learned men who willingly admit that there is an unknown God, a God they don't know. Amidst thousands of God, there's a God they don't know. And he leans into this spiritual ambiguity. Why? Because they, the philosophers, have something to be gained from this ambiguity, this spiritual darkness. It's easier to sit in the dark than to turn the lights on, spiritually speaking. Because when God is unknown, you can make him in your image. You can define him however you want to. We can't know God, so let's pretend he's like this. And often he ends up looking a lot like us. And so Paul leans into that ambiguity because the ambiguity is the opportunity for clarity. When someone says, I don't know, that's an invitation to say, well, actually, here's a potential answer. I think I know. Paul leans into the spiritual darkness. And there's two things that I think we can draw out of his method that are really relevant for us. The first thing is this, questions are opportunities. The philosophers overhear Paul in the marketplace and they say, what are you talking about? Ooh, question, opportunity. Oftentimes in my own life, and I think probably in yours as well, when friends and colleagues and family ask us questions about our faith, we're on the back foot. We feel defensive immediately. But questions are opportunities, even when they seem to be attacking. And the second thing is this. Our culture, like the culture of Athens, loves ambiguity. We love spiritual darkness. But Paul models what it looks like to lean into that unknown when someone says, I don't, I'm not sure, I don't know, God's out there, it's, you know. And Paul leans into that ambiguity and says, oh, it's Jesus. I know Jesus. You should come to church with me. Sometimes it's just an invitation. It's an opportunity. I, I ran into this a lot and learned, kind of figured it out while I was at university in France. And I was the only American there in my kind of sphere, there are other Americans at the university, but in my sphere of, of, of acquaintances and, and people I knew, uh, I was the only American. And so I would get asked quite a lot, why, how did you end up in France? Question. Opportunity. And so at first I would, I would answer, because of my dad's job. And the conversation would usually stop there. Whew. Crisis averted. But after a while, I realized that if I answered that question with, well, my dad's a pastor, they go, what's a pastor? Ooh, another question. More opportunity. I say, well, he's like, a, he's like, it's a really Catholic country, so I'd say, well, he's like a priest. And I had one friend who was really clued into the idea that the fact that priests don't have wives, and he looked at me and he was like, then how do you exist? And so from there, then we would talk about, then the inevitable question would be, well, what's the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant? Right. After a while, you could see it coming. Why are you here? Oh, I know this is going. And so from that question, then, eventually I figured out, after trial and error and error and error and error, I eventually figured out that I could talk about that I was a Protestant because of Jesus. And then as because of that personal relationship with Jesus that comes from the Protestants and the evangelicals, and, and that's, why, that's why I'm a Christian, a Christ follower, because of that personal relationship. Not bashing on Catholics, just make that really clear. Right? Questions are opportunities. 
And sometimes it's just the question is the opportunity and all you need to do to lean into the ambiguity of I don't know, I'm, I'm asking this question because I don't know, is to just be honest. And as a pastor. And when you start to value things that the culture, our culture around us doesn't value, man, that begs a lot of questions. Wait, you're going to church instead of your kid's football game? Why would you do that? Question. Why do you go to church instead of your kid's football game? If you do, hopefully you do. Well, you've been through this really hard time in your life, but you still seem like you're okay. How is that possible? Like, no one should be okay with that. Oh, question. Opportunity. Well, this sounds weird, but like, I, I love Jesus. Like, I, he's a big part of my life. And because I have a relationship with Jesus, which I know sounds weird, well, I go to church, and there's this community of people who's there that, you know, we, we encourage each other, and, well, they really took care of me while I went through this hard time. Questions are opportunity. Questions reveal an, a spiritual darkness they don't understand. Why? Lean into that. Lean into that. You never know. You might be the person who comes in and says the right thing at the right time on someone's journey towards Christ. And it might be something small, and it might not even be anything you said. You never know what God is doing in someone's life. Paul's mindset as he begins to preach in verse 22. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. This then I proclaim to you. The God who? The God of Paul's mindset is entirely God-centered as opposed to the Stoics and the Epicureans who are man-centered, who are humanistic. Man is the, man's affairs are the highest, most important thing Paul's view is explicitly God-centered. The God who, and he's not unknowable, he's not irrelevant, he's not in everything, like the Stoics or pantheists, pantheists would say, but he's knowable and he exists. The God who made the world in everything in it. You know, the Stoics, like I said, are pantheists, which means that God is in everything. He's in the podium. He's in, he's in, he's in the, the, the manuscript. He's in the drums. And if God is in everything, then God is really nothing. And Paul says, no, 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 no. God is, he made the world and everything in it. He is distinct from creation. He is the creator. And he is very relevant. Why? Because he made the world. And this God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. He can't be controlled or manipulated. He isn't some God, thank heavens, conjured from our own imaginations, built with our own hands. Because idolatry is exhausting. Isaiah 46 has this incredible picture of, of the way that we, we build idols but then we have to carry them and rescue them when they get stolen by enemy nations. Idolatry is exhausting because you give and you give and the idols themselves can't do anything. But God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. He doesn't need you, which is a good thing because idolatry is exhausting. But he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so God is not only involved in creation, he's the creator, but he sustains all human activity. Life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's not only involved in creation, he sustains human activity, but he directs human activity as well. And so Paul's mindset is not fatalistic. He doesn't do destiny. God directs history and it's going somewhere. And he put you 
right where you are. You know there's a lot of stuff in life you didn't choose, right? You know that, right? You're awake. There's a lot of stuff in life you didn't choose, like parents, skin color, language, socioeconomic status. Later in life, you maybe get a little bit of choice in that, but that's still ultra-dependent on your job, and oftentimes what you do for a job, you know how many people do what their parents did? Living proof. There's a whole lot you didn't choose in life. And the things we do choose get really get affected by the things we didn't choose. They influence our decision on a massive scale more than we generally like to admit in our country. And so the, where you are, where you live, God determined the times and the boundaries of your, your dwelling. Why? Why did he do that? So that you would seek him and find him and perhaps be part of someone else seeking and finding him as well. And that's why Paul's mindset is so important because he has this this understanding. He looks at his life and he goes, God placed me here for a purpose, for a reason. Where has he placed me? And who has he placed around me? Because the reality is, God placed you where you are. You're here because you found him. And he placed you in this area, in this Chester Mendham area, so that perhaps so that you would reach out and find him, or wherever where you wherever you were when you reached out and found him. And the continuing part of that is that you would be part of other people reaching out and finding him as well. And so there's an intentionality to Paul's mindset. There's an intentionality to Paul's mindset, so that they would reach out and find him. Yet he is not actually far from any one of us. He's not far from us. Christ came down to be near us. He he came as a child to be near us. He's moving towards you, he's moving towards me, he's moving towards those in our community who are seeking something. He's not actually far from each one of us. So where has he placed you? And who has he placed around you? The last thing, the fifth thing, we did the man, we did the motivation, we did the method, we did the mindset, and lastly is the message, the most important part. In verse 31, Paul gets there and he says, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Luke sums up Paul's teaching at the beginning in the marketplace in two words, Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. Paul starts and he ends with that message. And it's a simple message, Jesus and the resurrection. It's deep, it's incredibly deep, enough to feed your heart and your mind and soul, but it is simple. We ought not to complicate it or let others complicate it for us. Jesus and the resurrection. And there's an urgency to it as well. Paul says there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. And somewhere in our hearts, that ought to spark some kind of a concern for those who God has placed around us who don't know him yet. There ought to spark some element of concern in us for those who don't know him yet. So what the world needs most is faithful, committed Jesus followers willing to risk just a little bit to proclaim proclaim the good news. And that might be verbally, maybe God is calling you to speak to someone in your life who needs to hear your testimony, who needs to hear that, yes, I do believe in Jesus and he changed my life. And for some of us, that's easy. And for some of us, that feels like a lot more of a risk. But I can tell you from my personal experience that the times that I have obeyed when that felt like that was what God was asking me to do are the times, some of the times that I have felt the closest that I have ever felt to him because I risked for him. 
And you know what? He came through, and I found myself speaking words that I'm just like, I don't know where that came from because that was way too eloquent. But maybe it's a simple invite. Maybe it's a, you go to church on Sunday instead of the game? I do. Why don't you come with me? There's no game next week. Maybe it's a simple invite because <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend who, uh, no, it's not a friend. I'm mixing things up. I read an article about someone who's doing ministry among Arabs. I can't remember the country. But they said what stuck out to me was the idea that they said we found the golden bullet for, silver bullet, for ministering to bring the gospel to, to Muslims. And they said over time, as they are exposed to believers and to God's word, something happens in their hearts. And so as you invite your friends here, over time they're exposed to preaching and worship and other people who are following Jesus, something happens in people's hearts. They start to see Jesus. So maybe it's a simple invitation and maybe it's just an action. Maybe it's going down to live out the, the applications of the gospel in Guatemala or to do something closer to home. Where has God placed you and who has he placed around you? As the band comes up, if you leave with one question in your mind, sorry, two, where has God placed you and who has he placed around you? Let that start to be your mindset as you walk throughout your days, as you're at work, as you're at home, where has he placed you and who has he placed around you? You might be the closest point of contact with the gospel that someone has. In verse 27, Paul says, you know, God determined the boundaries and periods of our dwelling places so that we would seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him. That phrase, feel our way toward him, loses some of its imagery in English. In French, it's a little better. They use the word tetoné, which is this picture of, of being on your hands and your knees in a dark room, feeling around, trying to figure out where you're going and not having a clue where the light switch is. And what Paul models for us and what we are called to is to be part of turning the light switch on for people. Because our God is a God of light and he wants to illuminate the darkness and for people to have true freedom. Because remember, idolatry is exhausting and enslaving. Who has he placed around you? And where has he placed you? 